The rest of you can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, you can also find that passage uh, printed for you in your bulletin. Uh, we, we talk a lot about Advent this time of year, and um, I don't know about you, but when I was kind of entering into like the church world, I didn't grow up in the church, I heard that word a lot, and even after I became a Christian, I was like, Advent, 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 I feel like that's a word I'm supposed to know what it means. I, don't, I, I can't remember if that's Christmas or Easter, I always just get all those church words mixed up, and that may be where you're at, and that's totally okay. Um, but one of, the, one of the things about Advent is that there's a past, present, and future dynamic to this idea of Advent. It's a season of remembering the past, remembering what Jesus has done. It's a season of, of waiting in the present, and it's the, the season of hoping in the future. So we remember the past. We remember the first coming of Christ in Advent. It, it's, it's the most fundamental guiding truth that God himself took on flesh and came to become like us. He became one of us. So he knows what it's like to live as a person in this broken world. Yet he did so perfectly with no moral imperfection. So we're remembering that during Advent. We also wait in the present. What are we waiting for? Jesus said he's going to come back again. So we're waiting for his return. And this is where our hope comes in, this future hope. Um, we live in what's called the already and the not yet. Jesus has already come and lived and died and risen again. We remember that every week. And yet, if you're honest about yourself and the world we live in, we know that his mission is not fully accomplished. Our world is still broken. Um, we still have sin and rebellion inside of us. We see that every day, multiple times a day. But our hope is that these things are not the end of the story, but that he will come back and make us and all things new again. That's Advent. It's remembering, it's waiting, and it's hoping. And we're looking at Isaiah during Advent because he captures these very themes. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament who spoke God's truth to his people. And these people were afraid of external threats. There were other nations bearing down on them, trying to take them over. And, and yet inside of God's family during this time, they were not living very well. Uh, they were not living very faithfully. And yet into this reality, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah to his people and gives them this vision of hope. And last week we watched King Ahaz battle this, this internal tension as a leader of God's people as to whether he could trust in human strength or in God's strength, which we can all relate to that. We unpacked that last week. Unfortunately, like we often do, Ahaz chose to trust in human strength. And things did not go well from there. He made this pact with the Assyrians, which crumbled. They ended up coming after him. And the passage right before ours, Isaiah tells us that because of this, God's people are in a season of darkness. It is dark and gloomy for God's people. This is where our passage picks up. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them his light shone. You've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word and we just recognize that it's what we need most this morning. So, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us through your word? Apply it to our hearts and to our lives. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, How the Grinch Grinch Stole Christmas uh, was originally a book by Dr. Seuss, uh, which came out in 1957, but has been released uh, in in multiple iterations uh, as a movie. Uh, I am very partial to the 2018 animated version. Uh, I think it's just called The Grinch. Um, But they all follow the same storyline. Because of his childhood trauma, the Grinch does not like Christmas. And um, he lives up in the mountains uh, overlooking the town of Whoville, which is like the ultimate Christmas town. And he just uh, despises it um, so much that he, he makes his mission in life to just stop Christmas, to end it. And practically what this looks like is the Grinch going house by house on Christmas Eve and taking all the presents, all the trees, all the lights out of the houses. And in each of these houses, you see what was once this brightly lit family room full of a tree and lights and presents and decorations. And he leaves behind this dark, empty, gloomy room. And then you see uh, children from Whoville waking up in excitement on Christmas morning only to be devastated by the darkness of an empty room. And the darkness that he leaves behind, no matter how many times you've seen the movie or read the story, it just feels so sad. Because it is not the way it's supposed to be on Christmas morning. All right, here's one of the key truths of the Bible that we need to understand if we're going to get the bigger picture of what's going on. It's that we are drawn to darkness. Uh, Our rebellion against God, our sin, it's referred to as darkness in the Bible. And when our passage talks about walking in darkness, it's talking about us walking in our own sin and walking in the devastating effects of sin in the world on us. Um, Our world is not as it should be, as we've said, and we are not as we should be. Yet God does not leave us in the darkness. Into this darkness comes Jesus as King who is light and who brings light into the darkness. So our passage tells us this morning that Jesus is going to be the king who comes to rule over us. So we're going to ask three questions about that. Why do we need God ruling us? How does God rule us? And who is the God who rules us? First question, why do we need God ruling us? Um, We need God ruling us because we are not good at ruling ourselves. Uh, Think about just some of the little things in our lives that we don't always follow through on. You know, January 1st is coming, and and I wonder just, you know, like with all like the holiday things and food and all that, and even just the weather, you're thinking, you know, like, 
pretty soon it's going to be January 1st. I can't wait to get on that new workout plan, start eating healthy. We're always thinking about that. Uh, but how often do we, do we get this great new workout routine? Maybe we make it through a week or two and then we trail off once again. Uh, or we get a new family budget set up to really, really get our finances in shape. But then after a few months, it, it just remains this unopened icon on your computer that's just sort of staring at you in shame because you haven't opened it in a couple months. You're just sort of like back to like budgeting by feel again. Uh, or maybe like you have an ambitious plan of watching less TV, streaming less, and reading more. This is going to be the year of like reading books. But then like the new season of your show comes out and you just default to watching the show and not reading. All good things, all good intentions, but, but even with those really good things, we're typically not really good at ruling ourselves. Um, unfortunately, it's the same with the bigger, more ultimate things in our lives as well. Just before this passage in Isaiah 8, it tells us what was going on with God's people. So last week we saw they made this alliance with the Assyrians. We come to find out that that's going to backfire, and the Assyrians would then be invading Judah, making things even worse than they were before, or for this small remnant of God's people. So they had more external threats like we talked about. And so where did they go for help? Because God had clearly offered them help multiple times through this prophet Isaiah. Did they go to God, their true king, for help? No, they did not. Chapter 8 says they went to mediums and necromancers. That word necromancers literally means those in the know. Uh, these were their own pagan spiritual leaders and not spiritual in a good way. We're talking pagan, not believing in the true God. Sorcerers who, who are trying to communicate with the dead. That's where they went for help rather than to God. And sometimes just the mention of like pagan spirituality, uh, spirituality it sounds like so archaic and we feel so disconnected from that in our, in our modern times. Um, but we have very similar expressions of this. Um, there was a study that, that just came out this week from Pew Research that said 7 out of 10 adults consider themselves to be spiritual. 7 out of 10 adults consider themselves to be spiritual. And how they define that is um, as being connected to something bigger than themselves. And this is at the same time when religious affiliation is declining. So increase in spirituality, decrease in religious affiliation. And so what that means is that sense of spirituality that 7 out of 10 adults um, say is true for them could mean whatever they want it to mean. Um, it could be a spiritual relationship with nature. It could be a spiritual relationship with health and fitness and the quest for longevity. It could be a spiritual relationship with something like astrology. Why is that the case? That's the case because we were created to be worshipers. We are, in our very fundamental form, spiritual people. We are worshipers, yet sin redirects us away from God to the things of this world. That's what was happening with God's people here. Where does this lead? Isaiah 8 says it leads to distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish. What were they doing? They were not submitting to God's rule over them. Instead, they were trying to rule themselves. And what happened? They ran into darkness and gloom. I saw an article this week about dark sky tourism, which is growing rapidly. Dark sky tourism is when people travel to the darkest places in the country in order to go stargazing. 
Uh, there's some beautiful places where you can see the stars. And apparently, 99% of people in the U.S. now live uh, in a city with too much light. There's too much light pollution that they can't even see the Milky Way anymore. So you can think about that. You know, you live in a city, there's street lights, um, lights and houses, cars, all that creates light pollution which floods into the sky and so you can't really see uh, the, the stars in the sky anymore. So people travel to the darkness. Think about that for a moment. There's so much light that people are going out of their way to find the darkness. That's a picture of our hearts. Um, that's a picture of what was happening with God's people here. This, this small remnant of God's people, the ones who were entrusted with God's word, entrusted with God's temple, entrusted with God's special favor and his promises, that he had actually sent multiple prophets to go and remind them what is true, to call them back to himself uh, and to speak into their situations, but they reject all that and they just keep going out of their way to find the darkness. And we do the same thing even when we know better. Um, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7, um, where he says this. See if you can relate to this. This is Paul in Romans 7. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Um, can you relate to that? where you don't do the good thing that you hoped you would do and even that you really wanted to do, but instead you end up doing the evil thing that you did not want to do? Um, you know the envy and jealousy in comparison and anger at others that comes up inside of you when you spend too much time scrolling on social media. And you hate that when that arises inside of you. And you don't want that. Yet you do it anyways. Or, or uh, you know, the, the websites you're going to end up on when you're alone with your phone or your computer late in the evening and you don't want to go to those websites. You hate it, but you do it anyways. And it can just make you feel like you're losing it. Uh, another pastor once said that sin makes you go nuts. Um, there, there is remaining sin in our hearts that is constantly pulling us towards the darkness. The Bible talks about it as a war that's happening. Uh, darkness versus light, old self versus new self, flesh versus spirit. That is what's happening inside every single one of us. And we cannot get ourselves out of this darkness. It's as though we got lost in a totally dark cave, and the more we try to just wander ourselves out of that dark cave, the more we end up even more lost in the darkness. This is why we need God to rule us. Uh, think back to our confession of faith this morning, which is about Jesus as our King. The part of it uh, that talks about uh, what he does as king is that he subdues us to himself. Jesus subdues us to himself. Our dog Max uh, got these eardrops when we went to the vet a few weeks back. Sorry, it's kind of a gross thing to talk about, but, he, but it's real. Uh, he got some eardrops from the vet and they said, all right, you got to use these once a day for a week and then once a week for, I don't know, I guess forever. Uh, but which in theory, it sounds really simple, right? Put the eardrops in the dog's ear. Um, have you ever tried to put eardrops in a dog's ear? It takes about two to three adult humans uh, to get the eardrops in the ear and not get completely mauled by the dog. Um, Max does not want eardrops. Even though the eardrops will make his ears feel better, we have to subdue him in order to do what's best for him. Because of our sin, we need to be subdued by God. We cannot help ourselves 
We are terrible at ruling ourselves. This is why we need God ruling us. Let's ask this. How does God rule us? If Jesus is our coming king, what is his kingdom like? Maybe think about it this way. If God's kingdom is like a house, what would it be like to live in this house? And uh, you know when you're looking for a house or an apartment and you, and you, and you pull out the, the Zillow app and you're reading the descriptions on Zillow and those descriptions are there to paint a picture of what it would be like if you were to rent this apartment or buy this house. And sometimes you read these descriptions and you, and you think, that sounds a little bit too good to be true. Are, are these words really accurate? What do these words actually mean when they describe this house or this apartment in this way? There's a website that actually decodes and translates all these real estate words for you. Here's what some of them actually mean. They said if you read the word cozy or cottage, that that's code for very, very small. Um, if you see the words custom or unique, that actually means weird or tacky. If you see a house or apartment described as vintage, it often means ridiculously outdated. Uh, they said that the word modern actually means it's not that modern. Um, if you see the words great potential, it means it needs a lot of work and money. And then they said that the words well-maintained typically just means that the house is very old. But you read these descriptions and you're trying to figure out, okay, no, but really, what, what would it be like to live in this house or this apartment? Um, if, if, what is it like to live under the reign of King Jesus? If he's our coming king, um, how does he rule over us? Our passage tells us, look at verse 3. His rule brings joy. He says, you've multiplied the nation, you've increased, look how often the word joy is used here. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Um, th this remnant, it's saying it's going to grow. It's going to multiply. There's going to be more of God's people, and it will be characterized by joy, 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 joy. Um, knowing Jesus, following him, brings the deepest kind of joy we can find. Not surface-level happiness. This is not saying that life is going to be easy, but it's saying that it gives you a deep joy that is deeper than any one of these things. It's, it, it can sustain you through any suffering or loss, and it's better than any good you can experience in this life. His rule brings joy. Verse 4, his rule ends oppression. It says, for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as of the day of Midian. Jesus breaks the rod of those who oppress his people. Jesus is not okay with oppression. And we are so used to hearing about oppression and abuses of power, whether it's from a church leader or a politician or the head of a company or a CEO, someone rises to power and ends up being what? Oppressive and overbearing and even abusive in their leadership and their power. And we are so used to it that we can cringe now when we hear words like power or authority or even leadership. This is not how Jesus rules. His rule ends oppression. There's this immediate promise in verse 4 that God's not going to let these surrounding nations ultimately oppress God's people. But there's also this future promise that King Jesus is going to come and usher in a new heavens and a new earth where oppression is a thing of the past. And it is no more. His rule ends oppression. Verse 5, his rule ends war. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is saying that Jesus is going to rule in such a way that there will be no more war, which we simply can't fathom. Uh, I, I distinctly remember uh, as a kid 
um, when the, the Desert Storm conflict started. I can remember we had the news on TV, and that is forever emblazoned in my mind. However old you are, there are just international conflicts or wars or fights that you'll just never forget. That sort of the first time that you sort of experienced war on like a global level. And it seems like in the news we're always hearing about a new conflict, a new war, a new fight. Um, verse 5 is using strong language to say that Jesus is going to put an end to all that. Um, that God's enemies who conquer nations by violence will themselves be conquered. His rule ends war. This is what it's like to live in this kingdom of God, to live in this house of the kingdom of God. His rule ends war. Verse 7, his rule is just and righteous. It says to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Jesus always rules in perfect fairness and perfect goodness. He's never not fair. Verse 7, his rule is unending. It says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. How long? From this time forth and forevermore. To use another double negative, Jesus will never not be on the throne. He's the forever king. And all this, verse 6, and he's coming as a child. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. One commentator put it this way, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. And, and as you read this, you might be thinking kind of based on the grammar and the tenses of these verbs and what's going on. Did this, is, is Isaiah saying this already happened? Um, or is it going to happen in the future? Because this is a prophecy. He's using what's called the prophetic perfect. That's a, that, that's a special way of speaking that the prophets would use. And it's, it's a way of speaking of future events as if they already happened. Because with God, it's as, it is guaranteed that this will take place. And here's why this matters. Because Jesus really is this good. Um, contrary to our cynicism from all the abuses of power that we've experienced, Jesus comes as a child who will rule us perfectly. This is how he rules us. Third question, who is the God who rules us? Look at verse 6. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who is he really? What is his name? It's Wonderful Counselor. Um, you could translate that as Wonder Counselor. Um, because it's a supernatural, mir miraculous counsel that he gives. It is the job of a king to give counsel. Jesus does this perfectly in a supernatural way. He's the Wonder Counselor. He's mighty God. This child is both fully human and fully God. The babe in a manger is mighty God. Jesus is powerful. Nothing is stronger than him. He's mighty God. And he's everlasting Father. This is referring to Jesus, not God the Father, which can be a little bit confusing. Uh, and what that's saying is that it means that Jesus as king will be father-like. He'll be both caring and gentle yet also a protector of his people. He'll be father-like in how he exercises his rule over his people. He's everlasting father and he's prince of peace. In contrast to, to the war and the violence of all the other kings, Jesus brings peace. It's who he is. Everything he does, everything that he is, is always moving towards greater peace for us now and forever in our world. He's Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And you may have heard all that before, especially if you've been around a church at Christmas time. You may have heard this. Uh, you hear a lot of these passages in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. And you can, it can just sort of wash over you. And you might think like, okay, okay great. I, I hear you. I get it. I believe it. But, but is he really that good? Is he really better than what else this world can offer me? Uh, there's a, a dude perfect overtime. That's a quick left turn. But where they do, uh, they do this thing called the coffee taste test. And uh, one of the dudes, uh, Garrett, is a big time coffee snob. And so they, they try to put Garrett to the test and, sit, and they put a blindfold on him in this, in this segment of overtime and, and they get four different types of coffee and, and one of them is, is the coffee he drinks at home. It's the whole bean, fancy, expensive, pour over coffee that he's sure he's going to guess right during this taste test. So they do his expensive uh, whole bean homebrew coffee. They do Starbucks coffee, which is very distinct. They do gas station coffee and they do McDonald's coffee. And um, they blindfold them and they go through this process of elimination. They say, all right, Garrett, pick the very best one. And if you've seen this, you know which one he picks. He picks the gas station coffee. So all that hype about his own coffee being so much better than everything else. At the end of the day, no, it wasn't. He liked the gas station coffee. Is Jesus really this good? That might be a real question you have, especially if you've been around church You've heard it said. You've maybe said it yourself. Is he really this good? You may feel so cynical about that very question, about the church in general. Too many scandals. Too much of an abuse of power. Bad experience in your past. And for you, all that transfers to Jesus, and you wonder, can he really be that much better than what this world offers? Because some things in this life feel pretty good. Some things in life kind of make me happy. Can Jesus be any different? The answer is yes. And we know this because after about 700 years, after this was promised in our passage, Jesus came and did all these things perfectly. And he comes to us, you and me, in our real darkness and gloom, and he comes as the light of the world. And he invites us into his light. Now think back to the darkness and gloom that was caused by the Grinch. There's a scene in the 2018 movie where this, the, the big Christmas tree for Whoville is being flown over the Grinch's house. And uh, I forget the other character's name who's flying the tree, and he's like the most jolly, greatest character in that movie. Um, and, uh, and, and the Grinch sort of looks up to him from his house. He sees this giant Christmas tree going towards the town center. And, and, and this jolly man flying the tree and yells down to the Grinch. He says, just wait until we light it tonight. You'll be celebrating Christmas with us. As though he's saying, once you see this light, Grinch, you're going to change your mind. And sure enough, the Grinch goes and watches the tree lighting that night. And, and it's this, this magical scene. The tree is lit up and there's this, wow. You can hear the kids gasping. And the narrator says it was the most beautiful tree Whoville had ever seen. And as soon as that tree is lit, the Grinch is immediately reminded of how lost he is. And there's flashbacks of his lonely childhood. In this very counterintuitive way, the light of that tree and the people gathered around it singing made him realize his lostness. 
And that led him to all those things we talked about. Stealing Christmas, taking the trees, the lights, the presents from everyone in Whoville. But then at the end, as he watches those in Whoville gather and sing around where the tree used to be after the tree was stolen and gone, and they still maintain the sense of joy and wonder, he sees something in them that he wants. And the narrator says, as he watched the small girl, he thought he might melt. If he did what she did, would he feel what she felt? And then there's a spark of belief that happens in his heart. And and, and there's a graphic of his heart growing three times in that moment. And he then uh, starts on this quest to completely restore and make good on what he had stolen the night before. And it says, quote, he tried to make right what he had made wrong. In response to the light of that tree, he goes back and tries to, to, to remake all of what he stole from Whoville. In the midst of the chaos of December and kids' activities and office parties and year-end stuff and buying Christmas presents and thinking about how you want to change your life on January 1st, in the midst of all that, how are you responding to King Jesus and the light that he brings into darkness right now? Um, Do you see those around you who believe and do you long for what they have? Do you long to feel what they feel? Um, in those quieter moments of this time of year, do you see the light of King Jesus and does it immediately make you realize your own lostness? Here's the good news. He comes to shine his light on you. And he comes to, to reach his hand into the darkness of your life of whatever you're facing and to bring you in to his light. And he can do this because this good king came and took on the darkness of our own sin. He took it on himself and paid for it in full on the cross. And you know what he gives us in exchange? He takes our darkness. What does he give us? He gives us his light. And look at how our passage ends. What's the power behind this? What's the guarantee of this? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of God, the passionate pursuit of God will do this. His loving commitment to you will do this. This light to you is a gift. Won't you reach out and receive it by faith today? Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we so often walk in darkness, even after we have met Jesus the light. And even when we've, we have experienced in our own lives, it is better to walk in light than in darkness. We confess we're still, there are still parts of us that are drawn to darkness. And we need your help. We, we, we need Jesus our King to come and subdue us to come and rule over us in His perfect, just, righteous, joyful, loving, life-giving way, and to even sometimes drag us out of our darkness into the light. And so during this Advent season of remembering and waiting and hoping, would you, Holy Spirit, do that in us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.